0: Good morning. My name is Stephen Kravchuk. I have the pleasure of reading Acts 13, 44 to 52 to you today. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 922 of your Bibles. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for the word, and thank you for the light that you have imparted to each one of us, Lord. And today, we lift up Larry, and we pray, Lord, that you would just fill him with the Holy Spirit and allow him to impart your truth to us, Lord. And may we take that truth and share it with the ends of the earth. Amen.
1: Morning. How are we all? It's good to be with you. It's an honor to... Get up here and bring the word to you. Uh, I recently read of a couple of missionaries from Peru, uh, two young men who were sent from their local church to bring the word of God to those who were eagerly seeking it in Morocco. Uh, these two workers uh, from Morocco, Aaron and Said, they they were overwhelmed at. Uh, literally thousands of requests that they have been receiving over years for Bibles and information about the Christian gospel. And overwhelmed by this need, Aaron and Saeed had uh, reached out to friends of theirs in Peru, seeking uh, a couple of brothers specifically with a reputation for evangelism. And so uh, these two brothers from Peru, Caesar and Joel, They heeded that call. They packed up and they went with the blessing of their church. uh, They were sent to people who had never once heard the gospel, uh, never seen a Bible, or or never even met a Christian. Uh, After some months in Morocco in preparation, Caesar and Joel set out for the southern part of Morocco, uh, armed with a backpack full of pocket New Testaments, and. A joyful confidence that the Lord Jesus would direct them, and so about a week later, uh, Aaron received a call from Caesar and Joel, reporting that they had already given out many uh, new testaments they 'd even been invited to several homes where they were sharing the gospel, and the gospel was being received gladly, but they added uh, in their Report that local radio stations were announcing that there were some Peruvians who were distributing dangerous literature in the towns throughout that region. About a week after that, uh, Caesar and Joel were arrested for their gospel work. Uh, during the police interrogation, they were asked, Who sent you here? And they replied, Jesus Christ. <coughs> Why have you come? They were asked. They opened up one of those New Testaments that they had with them and they read uh, from Jesus' words in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 and and they read from Jesus' words before his ascension in Acts chapter 1 and these officers, they'd never seen a Bible before but they carefully copied these verses of scripture into the police report. Uh, They also had a copy of the gospel film and since that was evidence against them, the entire police department watched the film. Uh, Caesar and Joel were held for three days and they were threatened and then they were released and they continued on to share the gospel and to distribute New Testaments to hungry Moroccans for another four months when they were arrested again and they were deported. They went back to Peru and they began training their replacements. Now the experience of these two brothers examples of which could be multiplied greatly. I trust Dan and Tracy have some fresh stories along those lines from their time in India. The experience of these two brothers is, I believe, a modern-day illustration of the experience that Paul and Barnabas had in Antioch of Pisidia in that portion of Scripture which we just heard read and which will be our focus of consideration this morning. Uh, it's not just representative, this, the story that I just shared, I don't think it's just representative of the passage here in Acts 13, but I think it's representative of really the sort of experience that all gospel workers can be prepared for in our ongoing testimony to the Lord Jesus. Uh, we could summarize the, the main idea of this passage that we just heard read in Acts 13. I think we could summarize it like this. Christ's luminaries, I know that's a weird word to put into a summary sentence, but I'll, exp- I'll explain, okay, this is just the summary. Christ's luminaries can expect both rejoicing and reviling in their proclamation of God's word, and all of it is ordered by our sovereign God. I think that's the main point of this passage, and it's what I want to spend some time talking with you about this morning, Christ's luminaries can expect both rejoicing and reviling in their proclamation of God's word, and all of it is ordered by our sovereign God. So Christ's luminaries. I thought about what word to use there. There are many other words that could be used. Christ's ambassadors, Christ's messengers, Christ's witnesses. That would all convey the same basic idea. I chose the word luminary, a a light-giving body, because of what Paul and Barnabas said of their own ministry there in verse 47. Hopefully the Bibles are still open there to Acts chapter 13, verse 47. Paul and Barnabas gave explanation for their ministry. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light There's the luminary idea. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, before we get too far into thinking about that, let's just remember what's going on here because we just jumped into the middle of an account. Paul and Barnabas, remember, they have been set apart and sent by the church in Antioch, different Antioch, This one's taking place in Antioch of Pisidia. They were sent out by a church in another Antioch, about 500 miles away, and they were sent to bring the good news of Jesus to those who had not yet heard of him. This is a missions trip that we're exploring in these weeks together as we study the book of Acts. And so it's a good time to remind you yet again that uh, foreign missions is very dear to the heart of God. And it's good for us as we study this portion of God's word for us all to be considering how might the Lord want to use you and how might the Lord want to use this church to advance the name of Jesus among those with very little or maybe even no access to this life-saving, eternity-transforming good news. It would be good for you even as you hear this message just consider maybe whether the Lord wants to send you somewhere or whether he wants to embolden you to sacrificially send others. So anyway, Paul and Barnabas are sent. They arrive at Antioch in Pisidia and they go into a Jewish synagogue there where Paul has got some common ground because he's a known Pharisee and and he's invited to share a word of encouragement. And Paul stands up and he, he calls this Jewish synagogue to faith in the Lord Jesus. He proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to the nation of Israel. He died, uh, though he was innocent, he died in fulfillment of the scriptures and God raised him from the dead. And now all who come to Jesus could find forgiveness of sins and freedom in him. Paul urged that whole assembly to come to Jesus. And we're told uh, in verses 42 and 43 of this chapter that many were attracted to the message. Many wanted to hear more. They begged that these things would be told them again the next week. Many followed Paul and Barnabas, and it must have been quite a week. Like that week in between Sabbaths. Because what we're told here in verse 44, where Steve began to read, it says, the next Sabbath, and we're told the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And that would have been a lot of Gentiles too. This was a predominantly Gentile city, and so it was a crowd showed up that next Sabbath. But rather than celebrate this uptick in attendance, uh, the Jews were told, and I uh, understand that reference to the Jews there to be the Jewish leaders or the leaders of the synagogue because we're told in verse 43 that there were many Jews who followed Paul and Barnabas after that first Sabbath, but the Jews, the religious leaders, they were jealous Why are these people coming when I talk? They were jealous of the big crowd that had gathered. Jealous, perhaps, especially that Gentiles thought they could get in on this Hebrew-Israelite salvation, and they spoke abusively. They were contradicting the things that Paul was saying, maybe even blaspheming God himself. That word uh, translated reviled in verse 44 is is the word that we get our word blaspheme from. And so Paul and Barnabas, we see in verse 46, they respond boldly, since you refuse, since you're thrusting aside this word of life that's been held out to you, and basically, you, you've, I think there's some irony in, in their language here of judging yourself unworthy of eternal life. If you don't think you're worthy to receive such a message, we're, we're going to the Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas see a justification for that shift in ministry. We came here to bring this word to you Jews in the synagogue, but since you're thrusting it aside, we're going to the Gentiles. And this wasn't just pragmatic. It wasn't like, well, okay, we don't have a hearing here. Let's just go to these other people. They see this shift from Jew to Gentile as fulfilling Scripture. Specifically, the scripture that was found in Isaiah chapter 49. That's the verse of scripture that Paul and Barnabas are referring to when they say there in verse 47, the Lord has commanded us. You've thrust aside the word, we're going to the Gentiles because for the Lord commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And there's an awful lot to unpack right there. And uh, I I don't wanna gloss over it too quickly because I, I want you to have strong encouragement about the dignity and the glory and the biblical roots of your calling Christians to be Christ's very own luminaries. That's an amazing thing. And I want you to see it in the Bible. Isaiah 49 is a very intriguing passage because in the original context, if you go back into Isaiah 49, it appears that this servant to whom the Lord is speaking, who's gonna be a light to the Gentiles and bring salvation, it sounds like he's talking about the nation of Israel. So you don't have to turn to Isaiah 49, but, but it says in Isaiah 49, three, there's a few verses before where Paul quotes from, It says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But as the chapter goes on, and if you know the context of Isaiah, Israel has shown themselves to be a very unfit servant of the Lord. They have rebelled against God. They have been spiritually adulterous. They're blind. They're obstinate. They're in bondage to sin. And basically, the Lord has said throughout the book of Isaiah that they're unfit for that calling to be his servants. And so he's addressing, as Isaiah 49 continues, it becomes clear that the Lord's not just speaking of the nation of Israel, but he's actually speaking of one single individual who would represent Israel and who would stand in their place, one who would display the beauty of the Lord in his life and message the way the nation of Israel was called to do but had failed to do. The Lord was going to set Him his spirit upon one particular individual who would actually be used to restore Israel from their spiritually bankrupt condition and bring them back to the Lord in sincerity and in truth. But this servant's ministry, this one Person's ministry would not just be about restoring the nation of Israel, but also gathering a worldwide people, the nations of the earth, to bring them in to fold them into the Lord's glorious salvation. If if Paul Paul, you know, in, in Acts thirteen forty seven, there's this little quote from this part of Isaiah forty nine. If he had read the whole verse of Isaiah forty nine six. This is what he would have read. It is too light a thing. He's talking to the servant here. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So this, see, that's how you can see this servant being talked about in Isaiah 49, though there was initially a reference to Israel, it's not the nation of Israel because this servant is gonna bring back the preserved of Israel. He's gonna bring back a remnant. He's gonna restore Israel, but that's not all he's gonna do. He's gonna, it would be too light if he just did that. He's going to be a light for the nations that the salvation of God would extend to the ends of the earth. Who is that servant, we wonder? We wonder being called Israel, but at the same time coming to rescue and restore Israel and expand the reaches of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Who might that servant be, class? Jesus. Jesus. It's always a good answer in church, and it is the right answer in this particular instance. It's Jesus. At, at his birth, when Jesus was born, Merry Christmas, it's coming up, okay? Everybody's going to... We don't have an Advent series. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a moment. This is an Advent series. Merry Christmas. When Jesus was born, the prophet Simeon came, and he saw the baby Jesus, and he proclaimed with wonder and joy. This is in Luke chapter 2. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What was Simeon meditating on? Why did Simeon say that? He was meditating on Isaiah. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, Some 30 years or so later, Matthew sees the beginning, the the arrival of Jesus and the beginning of his ministry, he sees it as fulfilling another of Isaiah's prophecy. It says that Jesus was raised up and it it said that this was in fulfillment of what God had said through the prophet Isaiah, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And that's the, that's the identity that Jesus himself knew that he was fulfilling. He's the one who himself proclaimed uh, in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Not just the light of the Jewish people, Jesus said. I'm the light of the world. I've come to bring salvation to the ends of the earth and to bring the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to the nations. So if you have come here today very aware of the deep cloud, I mean, it's a nice, bright, sunny day. But I know there are some of you that come here every single Lord's Day, and it feels like there's a deep and dark cloud hanging over your souls. And if that's you today, whether that darkness is looking at the world, whether it's looking at the news and thinking about the very dark reality of the fact that a terrorist organization is setting, setting up shop inside a children's hospital to further their work of terror, whether it's something like that, that weighs you down in the gloom and the darkness of this world, or whether it's maybe your own health. I was talking to a brother yesterday on the phone uh, uh, that I hadn't talked to in a couple years. We are just catching up and he was telling me about health issues he was having and tinnitus. You know, tinnitus is ringing in your ears, this ringing in the ears that has become so bad he can't even sleep at night because his ears are ringing. He's sleepless, he's weary, he's tired, he's aware of the darkness of this world. Whether it's the news, whether it's your own health or the health of other loved ones, darkness, distress, If you're acquainted with the darkness of this world, we have great news that Jesus is the light of the world who dawned to find those who were living in darkness. Whatever that darkness is that you may be walking in, I don't know what that darkness might be, but ultimately, the ultimate cause of all the darkness of this world is the darkness of sin. Please understand, I always feel that I need to say this and clarify this in saying what I just said, I don't mean if you're experiencing a particular experience of suffering, it's because of some sin that you committed. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the reason why this world is broken and corrupt and why there is tragedy and why there are tears, the ultimate reason is because of the existence of sin in the world. Because of sin, the world is under the righteous judgment of a holy God And all of us sinners have been separated from the shining, brilliant light of God's countenance. That is why brokenness, that is why corruption, that is why decay, that is why wars, that is why illness and disease, that is why it's here. They are signposts pointing us to the deep and everlasting darkness that is to come on those who continue in their rejection of the true and living God, who is the author of all life and light. But Advent, this season of Advent that we're getting ready to move into and its climax in Christmas is the announcement of the good news of great joy. That in his love, God sent the Lord Jesus into this sin ravaged world to bring the light of his love into the darkness of our own distorted devotion to ourselves to live the perfect life of devotion to God that we have failed to live and to die as a sacrifice in the place of all of us who deserve the eternal darkness of judgment and hell, who would turn, all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him, God's word went out, in Jesus, we can have light and life and salvation and not wallow in the pit and darkness of, of, of just squalor and misery that is alienation from God. He said to all, he said to the whole world, come and find life in me. This is what Advent, this is what Christmas is all about. And so we, we are gonna be staying in as we, as we move through Thanksgiving and towards Christmas. We're just gonna keep on moving through the book of Acts because Acts is showing us the Advent heart of God as God just brings this good news of Jesus to more and more people and more and more nations. And if you're here this morning and you've not come to the light of Jesus, we urge you and we appeal to you to come to Jesus. If you have recognized yourself as one who is estranged from God, one who is living without God and without hope in this world, step into the light of Jesus through repentance, through turning from sin and through faith in Christ. That is what the apostle Paul himself experienced when he was on that broad road to destruction. He himself was in darkness and rejection and alienation towards God because of his re- rejection of Jesus. But God changed him. God made light shine in Paul's heart. That, that darkness to light experience is so dramatic. It's called new birth. It's like being made an entirely new creation. And Paul had come to know, he had seen light in the, in the face of Jesus. And he had come to realize that his whole life existed for Jesus. And then God said to him, I'm gonna use you to be my instrument to bring that light to more and more people and more and more nations. Paul, Paul recounts this later on in the book of acts when he looks back upon his conversion and his calling as a servant of jesus he says the lord jesus told him this is in acts 26 he said i'm sending you to the to the nations i'm sending you to the gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of satan to god that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was Paul's commission. And for those of you here this morning who have come to Jesus, this command, this charge that Paul had received from the risen Lord is also ours today. Jesus, the light of the world, is no longer physically among us shining that light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Jesus ascended to heaven. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, he said, I'm going to send my spirit to you so that you would be my witnesses, that you would carry on my light to the ends of the earth. And Paul's not here anymore shining that light. But the the work's not done. There's more and more nations. There's more and more peoples yet to hear this good news. And so the Lord Jesus says, not just to an apostle, not just to a missionary, not just to a pastor, but to all of his disciples, he says to them, you are the light of the world. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, just the quote unquote ordinary Christians in Philippi. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be innocent and blameless children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It is not just the task of apostles, it's not just the task of pastors to be Christ's luminaries in the world but every single one of us who has been given eyes to see God's glory shining in the face of Christ. Every one of us who has been freed from bondage to satanic darkness, every one of us who has happily been joined to Jesus through the experience of receiving his wonderful love and his sacrificial grace poured out to us through his life and death and resurrection. Every one of us is charged to declare that good news and spread that light to more and more people. Peter, the apostle Peter, writes this to scattered Christians in the first century. Again, not written to missionaries per se, not written to pastors, just written to ordinary Christians. He says, you are a chosen race you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The mission of the servant, Isaiah 49, to be God's instrument of light shining in the world, that mission undertaken first by Jesus, is now carried on by all who are united to Jesus by faith so that we can say, we who have come to Jesus, we are the light of the world, we are his luminaries testifying, bearing witness to the love and the grace and the kindness of God that is available to all hell deserving sinners because of his brutal, agonizing death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the grave. Now, I have prolonged this point because I'm burdened. I'm going to say what I just said a couple minutes back. Well, it wasn't a couple minutes now. It was like 15 minutes back. There's no sense of time up here. That's why we never end exactly when I'm thinking we're going to. I have prolonged this point, beloved, because I'm burdened that you would have strong encouragement. This week, even as many of us will gather with loved ones that are far from Christ. I want you to have strong encouragement as you consider your calling to them. I want you to have strong encouragement as you consider whether the Lord might be calling you to go to people who've never heard the name of Jesus to shine that light amongst them. I want you to have strong encouragement about the dignity and the glory and the biblical roots of your calling to be Christ's own luminaries in the world. What an awesome privilege that is. What a holy and weighty responsibility it is to be those filled by the Spirit. I mean, Paul says in another place, who is sufficient for these things? Surely not us, but he has given us his spirit that we might be his agents of light, declaring his glories, shining his light in the world. That's who you are, beloved. That's who you are, Christians, when you step out of this sanctuary and go out into this world amongst those whom you uh, live around and those whom you work with and those whom you recreate with, those whom you will celebrate holiday feasts with, they need to see the light of Christ shining in the lives of his witnesses and he's put you around them that they might know the Lord Jesus. And when you go to proclaim him, when you go to proclaim him, just as Paul and Barnabas did, just like Caesar and Joel did in Morocco, just as so many luminaries have done over the past 2,000 years of church history, When you go and you speak of him, you can expect two very different responses to this word of God. You can expect rejoicing, and you can expect reviling. That's where the title of this sermon came, Two Ways to Live. It's not a good title. I would do it again if I had a chance to. Whatever. It's a title. You don't think about it that much anyway. But that's what I'm saying. If you're wondering, two ways to live, what is that? I mean, that's attractive. What I'm I'm talking about is right here, there are two ways to live. They're shown in the response to this message going out. There's the way of rejoicing, there's the way of reviling. And I don't need to dwell long on this because I think it's very straightforward in the passage. On the one hand, we clearly see there's reviling in response to this gospel work, right? The, the, The religious leaders, they're filled with jealousy. They're contradicting the word of God. They're reviling the luminaries of the Lord Jesus. They've thrusted aside the word of God. They've judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And undeterred by that bold rebuke with scriptural citation from Paul, they incite, we're told there towards the end of the passage, they incite leading men and women of the city. They stir up persecution and they drive these luminaries, these ambassadors of Christ, they drive them away from their district. They experience reviling in response to their gospel witness. And just as we share in the luminary ministry that Paul and Barnabas were called to through our faith with Christ and through our union with him, we also will share in the scorn and in the reviling. And I just want to encourage you, beloved, maybe, that, maybe you're going to get some reviling this week. That's, that could happen at Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. The main point of Thanksgiving, I mean, we should be thankful people, but if we're gathering with people that don't know Jesus, the main point is not just to have a nice time with them, it's to bear loving witness to the Lord Jesus among them. And when you do that, you might get reviling, you might get insulting, you might just get apathy, but you might get more than that. And I want to encourage you, beloved, don't take that personally as if you've done something wrong because someone is offended or they don't want to talk to you or they don't know how, why you would bring up something like that. The gospel message, and it's called to repent and believe, right? The gospel message that we were made by God and we were made for God, we exist to give him glory and we have all miserably failed to do it. We have lived for ourselves instead of living for the one who at this moment is sustaining our breasts. And because of that rebellion against him, we deserve to suffer eternally. But he's so good and loving. There's nothing you can do. You might think you're a good person. There's nothing you can do to make up for that. But if you would turn from yourself and look to Jesus and rely upon Jesus, he'll give you the life that you don't deserve. That's offensive to people. They don't want to hear you talk about that. Don't be surprised when you get reviling. It's hard. I don't mean to make light of it. It is hard. It is painful when we experience that, especially when we experience it from loved ones. But what keeps us going in the midst of that hard work, in the midst of the reviling that we can know in service to Jesus, what keeps us going is the strong confidence that some of the people that we will speak to will have a very different response. It will be the response of rejoicing. We see that here in this passage, right? The whole city was eager to hear about this message. It was spreading throughout the whole region. We're told that when the Gentiles heard that word from Isaiah 49 about salvation going to the ends of the earth, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And despite the harsh treatment of the religious leaders and the civil leaders of the city towards Paul and Barnabas, these, these brand new Christians, it says, when, when Paul and Barnabas were scattered, they were driven out of the district. And it says the disciples that were left there in Antioch, they were full of joy and the Holy Spirit. With their two brand new disciples banished from the district, Wondering, I would imagine whether that hatred towards them was going to come to me now as I began to follow Jesus. It's as they were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And as we seek to bear witness to Christ, we can expect that kind of joy too in response to our witness. We can expect both responses joy and hatred. Paul, I mean, this missions class is funny, Stan, like, you just keep mentioning verses. I'm like, I'm going to mention that one. I'm going to mention that one. I'm going to mention that one. Here's one I'm going to mention. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians about his ministry. And all of us who seek to shine that light, we can expect two things. He put it this way to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Some people are gonna hate us. Some people may love us. What's our calling? Not to get them to like us. Not to get them to smell like Jesus. Jesus. To have that aroma of Jesus in our lives and on our lips as we declare that good news, that's what our calling is. And he just says right here, we're gonna, be, we're gonna smell like death to some people. And yet to others, they're gonna smell life and joy and freedom and peace. Now, what makes the difference? Why, why is it when we go out as his luminaries, whether we're going to the dinner table or whether we're going to Morocco, why is it that some smell life and others only death? Why, why did some here in Antioch rejoice while others only revile and reject the message and its messengers? Well, we get a little answer in the text. Did you notice it? It's a little tiny phrase, but I think it's a big deal to strengthen us and encourage us in our witness. Did you, do you see it? That's right. It's a good response to look down at your Bibles. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, remember this was the word from Isaiah about how the Lord was bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Here it is. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. If you've been sitting here for the last 77 minutes wondering what's all this electing, choosing stuff we're talking about? It's, it's right here. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a really surprising phrase. At least I find it surprising because I would think maybe it would just be said right the other way. As many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Right? You believe and you receive the gift of eternal life. But it doesn't say that. It says as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why does Luke say that? He does not have to say that. He could have just said, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and many put their faith in the Lord Jesus. He could have said that, and we would that would be wonderful. Praise God. But he says, specifically, of those who were believing, these ones who believed, if you have any question about why they believed, why they rejoiced, the answer is that they had been appointed to eternal life. And Luke, I think, luke well, I don't even want to say I think. Luke got that from Jesus. He got that idea and that category from Jesus because Jesus himself knew what it was like to experience a little bit of rejoicing on the one side and a lot of reviling on the other. And one such place where he experienced that is in John chapter 10. You remember John 10? We love John 10. Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep he's came that we may have life and that we may have it abundantly. Who could, who, could, who could hate that? There were people that hated it. They hated it. They hated him. They were scorning him. And Jesus said to those religious leaders in John chapter 10, he, says, he said to them, the reason you do not believe is that you're not of my sheep you're not of my sheep. Not, not, the reason you're not of my sheep is that you don't believe. Just believe and you'll become one of my sheep. He said, the reason you don't believe, it's in John 10, 26, if you don't believe me, it's in John ten twenty six. The reason you do not believe is that you're not of my sheep. He would say in that context, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning beyond the nation of Israel, all the nations of the earth. He said, "I have sheep; they're not of this fold. I must bring them also. They are appointed to eternal life. My Father has given them to me, and it's His will that I would not lose any of them. And so, you go preach in my synagogues, Paul. You go preach, Barnabas. You go preach, Caesar and Joel on the streets of Morocco. You go preach, because I have a sheep. I have my people, and they're going to hear my voice. And all that the Father has given me, they will come to me, because." I I've appointed them they're mine and that's what we see playing out in the book of Acts we're, t- we're told in chapter 11 you remember when when Peter went to the house of Cornelius and there was this dramatic change and the people in Cornelius's household they they all repented what are we told what is the conclusion of the of the believers there well to the Gentiles God has granted repentance we're going to see in a few weeks, Lord willing, in Acts chapter 16, Paul, the, this, the advent heart of God pushes into the city of Philippi, and Paul finds a prayer meeting, and what are we told? Lydia, because she was such a godly woman, she just heard that word and she loved it. That is not what we're told. We're told the Lord opened her heart so that she paid attention to the word. Paul, that, that advent heart of God stretches into the region of Achaia, and we're told in Acts 18, 27, it was through grace that the people of Achaia believed. Paul's in Corinth in chapter 18. Gospel, advent, heart of God, moving to the city of Corinth. And and Paul's got that same experience of a little bit of rejoicing, a little bit of reviling. and, and, And the Lord says to Paul, do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. That's what keeps Christ's luminaries going in the midst of the dangers and the toils and the snares that we all know in the good work of witness. That's one of the secrets that kept Paul resolute and resilient amidst all the hostility that he endured for Jesus' sake. Do you you see, look at verse 51. It says, they shook off the dust from their feet right, this was in the midst of the persecution and the scorn, they shook off the dust from their feet against them. And I I don't want to spend too much time on that phrase, but Jesus had commanded that. That was basically a way of saying, if you're going to scorn and reject the message, even the dust of your land, I don't even want it clinging to me. It was, I'm not, and I'm not saying anytime we share the gospel with somebody, if they aren't immediately receptive, that we should do that kind of thing. But there's a point when somebody has a hard, settled, fierce, determined, obstinate hatred for what we're saying, sometimes it's best to just shake the dust off of our feet. Doesn't mean we wish ill upon them. We can still pray for them, but it's like, I'm not even going to keep giving you this word anymore. If you have discernment on when it's appropriate to do that, or you want wisdom on how to do that, or when to do that, I'd be glad to talk with you. I don't have any obvious answer to that, but we could pray about that. But look, they shake the dust off of their feet, and it says, they went to Iconium. They weren't deterred they just went to Iconium. You know what they're going to do in Iconium? Jason knows. He's already started prep for next week. They're going to do the same thing. They're going to go to the synagogue. They're going to preach. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. They just keep doing it. Why? Because he, Because Paul knows God's got a people. He's got a people in Iconium. He's got a people in Lystra. He's got a people in Philippi. He's got a people in Corinth. He's got a people here in Antioch. And he's going to go because he knows God's got his people. That's what makes all the pain and all the sacrifice and all the scorn and all the derision and all the indifference that we, feel, that we experience feel light and momentary because he's got a people. We do the heralding, we seek to live with the Spirit's help, an upright and godly life, we persevere, we scatter that seed, and we can do so in the confident expectation that God will bring his sheep safely into his kingdom. I think that's why Luke puts that little phrase right here, as many as were appointed to eternal life belief, because he knows it's hard, he knows it's gonna be wearying, and he wants to strengthen us with the confidence that as we go, God will infallibly save his people. As we go to scatter that seed, the invisible hand of God will apply the word of God and cause people to be born again as children of God who see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. If you are here and you're a Christian, he did that for you. And that should be the cause of great praise to God. Awestruck humility that he might choose us, that he might set his love upon us, that he would have opened our hearts to give heed to the word of God and be saved and now be sent to serve him, that we might be his instruments in seeing more and more and more of his sheep coming to know and love and live for the Lord Jesus. Oh, I probably haven't done an adequate job, but I hope it makes a little bit more sense now what I said at the beginning. Christ's luminaries can expect both rejoicing and reviling in their proclamation of God's word, and all of it is ordered by our sovereign God. Isn't it amazing to think that when Paul and Barnabas showed up at this synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, there was no joy in Jesus there, And they did some ministry for a week, and they got run out of town. And how does this passage end? The disciples, the disciples who were there in Antioch, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And there's people groups he still wants to do that with, and maybe he wants to use some of you to do it. Let me just close with something a little closer to home, though, than those unreached peoples. Eight years ago, this is what I said I might share. I'm sharing it. When we set out, when we, meaning my family and a few others, actually Providential, that Steve was up here reading, because Steve and Danielle were part of this group, and Tim and Allison, we set out some years ago. It was eight years ago, I believe, to share the gospel, to try to be luminaries for Christ amongst the Rowan basketball team. And we got to know some of these guys that played basketball at Rowan, and we hosted a lot of dinners. And what we learned is that these young men, college basketball players, they eat a lot of food, okay? It was a lot of money. It was a lot of money spent on showing hospitality to these young men. We probably had 20 or 30 of them over, over, over years regularly into our houses, and they, they, they ate a lot of our food spent with your money, actually. You know what I'm saying? Because you put money in the basket and that's how we get our food. And we thank God for that. And you, just, you we just, we just fed them. And we shared about Jesus along the way and we had fun and we played games and it just, like, I don't know. like When we set out to do that, we did not have Megan Niehoff on our minds. But Megan Niehoff is now Megan Robinson. Her husband, Elron, was sitting at that table. And one day I saw him wearing a shirt that was like a Christian, I don't know, it had a cross on it, and that's an open door for me. And we started talking, and he didn't really know the Lord. He would tell you now, he didn't really know the Lord. Well, we started talking more, we started reading the Bible. He moved out to Portland, I was devastated, he moved to Portland, Went, right when we were starting to talk about stuff, he, I, was, I couldn't figure out where he was, what he, is he, was he with the Lord, is he not with the Lord? Well, he met Megan then and they, they got married. And last month, they had a little, they got married in Portland, but they had a little reception here up in North Jersey, and we're there, and Elrond gets up, he says, there's some people I wanna recognize, Those people that wouldn't, I w- we wouldn't be here tonight if it wasn't for some people, and I wanna recognize some people. And I'm thinking, he's gonna talk about his parents. you know. And <laughs> The first person he says is Larry Lazarus. We would not be here without Larry Lazarus, and you need to know that I'm not saying, oh, well, look, he's an amazing guy. This was the Lord Jesus. Because his heart's been changed, and Megan, who who Megan's now calling Michelle just this past week. She's they're expecting a child. She they're they're settling into Portland. They're part of a good gospel, like-minded church now in Portland. He's going to get baptized in a few weeks, and and Megan calls up Michelle, and she's just like overwhelmed at the goodness of God. Why me? We ask why me when suffering comes, right? This woman is. I mean, I'm just getting this from Michelle. I'm at Elrond, we're walking with the Lord, we got a church, I'm expecting, I'm, I'm, I'm living in Portland, what? How? Why? I don't deserve this. And she's like, is, that, is it right to feel that way? And Michelle's like, that's how we live as Christians, we don't deserve any of it, but God's been so good to you. We didn't have Megan in mind with all those meals, but I'll tell you one story like M- Megan and Elron gets you through a whole lot of reviling along the way, beloved. we've got a wonderful message to proclaim. Light and life and freedom, joy. Let us watch eagerly, let us scatter the seed. let us be a going people, taking that word, relying on him to provide for every part of our witness, trusting that he will draw all his appointed people to himself, and as we watch eagerly and expectantly to see what our sovereign God will do, we can trust that he will do immeasurably more than all that we could ask or imagine. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, which was the ministry of your spirit. We thank you that they persevered. We thank you that they persevered because they had a confident hope that you were the almighty sovereign God full of power and authority, and full of goodness and kindness. It is so amazingly incomprehensible that it would be in your heart to save sinners, to save any of us. And you have been kind in Jesus to do that. And it's our longing now to be his luminaries. Would you fill us freshly with your spirit, today, in this new week that is ahead, that we would boldly, lovingly, respectfully, and confidently declare Jesus' excellencies. Would you be pleased even in the next few weeks to bring about many stories of rejoicing? And would you give us grace to persevere through the reviling that we might know, trusting that you are sovereign good, God, and that you do all things well? We ask for this all in Christ's name, amen.